The reading today is from Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins... Your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. The hottest Sunday of the year so far, and the intern's up here. (laughs) I think it was planned. Well, join me in prayer as we begin. Father, you are God, and you have blessed us, Lord, to be able to come together to gather together to worship your name, to sing praises to you and to your Son, to your Spirit, and acknowledge, Lord, that in you is life, and you have given us new life, Lord, through your Son. Lord, as we look at this text this morning, we do pray for fresh eyes, fresh ears, as it is a familiar text, Lord, and pray that we would see it anew, we would know you in new ways, Lord. So we ask that you be with us during this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, every word in the Bible, I think we would agree, is an important word. From John 3.16 to the most monotonous, longest list or genealogy you can find. Regardless of the format, the content, the style, every word in the Bible is from God. And so it's important. But in our text this morning, it seems like there's something extra special that has grabbed people and directed people here throughout the years. You know, its I don't think an exaggeration to say this is the most recited, most prayed, most offered up prayer in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer here in our text. You might even be able to say that this text of Scripture might be the most used text in the entire history of the, you know, the Christianity. Every day, thousands, millions of Christians say this prayer, memorize this prayer, read this prayer, meditate on these words. So there's something in here that, I don't know, that's special. And so we're going to start our time this morning just hearing what other saints, other people have to say about this prayer. People that have spent a significant amount of time in this text. And so St. Augustine, he lived in the end of the 4th, beginning of the 5th century, he says, 
Whatever else we say when we pray, if we pray as we should, we are only saying what is already contained in the Lord's Prayer. Martin Luther, the uh, famous reformer of the 1500s, um, he says that a Christian has prayed abundantly who has rightly prayed the Lord's Prayer. And he also says, and just only the way that Luther can illustrate, um, to this day I suckle at the Lord's Prayer like a child. And as an old man, I eat and drink from it and never get my fill. It is the very best prayer. It is surely evident that a master composed it and taught it. And also one more for him. He called the Lord's Prayer the greatest martyr, for everybody tortures and abuses it. And then J.I. Packer, who by God's grace is still living, is getting old. He says this prayer is a pattern for all Christian praying. Jesus is teaching that prayer will be acceptable when and only when the attitudes, thoughts, and desires expressed fit this pattern. That is to say, every prayer of ours should be a praying of the Lord's Prayer in some shape or form. We never get beyond this prayer. Not only is it in the Lord's first lesson in praying, it is all the other's lessons as well. And so those are high praises. You can tell that these people have spent significant time praying and studying and thinking about these words. But um, this prayer, this famous prayer, has an interesting context. If you can think back to last week, Pastor Brandon um, talked about verses 1 through 18 of this chapter, and he left out this section. In uh, last time, we talked about prayer, and we talked about fasting, we talked about giving, but how they are not acceptable to God, these acts of righteousness. And so what we concluded, what Pastor Brand showed us, is it's not necessarily the repetition of the prayer, the length of the prayer, or that it's in public, or that it's you know, masterful, or that it's one word, or it's not how long you fast, or how, you know, how much you struggle with it. It's not how much you give or how little you give. It's all about the motivation. Who are you giving to? Are you doing these things for others so that others see them? Or are you doing these things so that God sees them? And so this is the context in which this Lord's Prayer sits. We have what not to do last week, and then we have what to do this week. And so we do have to ask, as we, as we think about last week and this week, what's the difference? Other than the fact that Jesus told his disciples to pray this, <laughs> and he endorses it, I mean, that's probably reason enough. But there's more to it than that. What's the difference between last week and the types of prayers and acts of worship and this week? And so, as we begin our time, I first want to just say something about prayer in general, and then a couple things about prayer, this prayer in specific, and then we'll get started. And so if anybody has ever tried to pray once, or even, you know, consistently, that we realize it's a struggle. It's hard. It's hard to pray, and it can just be perplexing at times. And we start thinking, am I doing this right? Do I need to say something different? Should I get on my knees? You know, we start to to question what we're doing. But yet, on the other hand, prayer is the easiest thing in the world. All you have to do is open your mouth and say something, or direct your thoughts. It doesn't cost anything. It's free. And so it's, it's not those things that hinder it. What, what makes prayer so hard? 
You know, if you took a survey of Christians, just asking them, what do you want to improve on in your, in your, your life and spiritual disciplines? You usually get the answer, prayer. I want to pray better. And so somehow, prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. And Jesus knew this as well. We see throughout the Gospels, he spends significant time in prayer. And he carves it out. He gets up early. He gets away from the crowds. He goes into a secluded place. And we also see Jesus struggling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before his you know, betrayal and his arrest. He is physically, emotionally, spiritually struggling so much that he bleeds sweat. So he knew what it was like to struggle. He knew how hard prayer is. And so he gives the disciples these words. So why is it a struggle? That's a question we want, we're going to come back to later. But two things here before we dive in, specifically about the prayer, the Lord's Prayer. On one hand, it is a model prayer in that it's easily memorized. It's not very long. It's an outline. You know, it serves as an example of how we can approach God and how we can speak to Him. So on one hand, it is a model of something we can actually pray. We are to actually pray it. On the other hand, it serves as an outline for the sort of the entire Christian life. It underlines what our priorities should be as Christians, as followers of Christ. And it helps us get them in focus, proper focus. And so when Jesus gives these words to his disciple, I mean, his concern is not protocol. You know, as if, if you want God to hear you, say these words and then do this. That's, that's not what he's saying. But his concern is with truth. Truth and worship. And so there are many ways we could try to work our way through this prayer. You know, it's dense. As some of the quotes said, you know, you you never get through it. But today we're going to focus on five themes that we see throughout this prayer and also that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount that we have seen or we will see. And so those five themes are the worship of the Father, and these all end in Father. The worship of the Father, the kingdom of the Father, the sustenance of the Father, the grace of the Father, and the protection of the Father. Worship, kingdom, sustenance, grace, and protection. So we'll get to the, uh, we'll say those over and over. So this prayer opens up the opening phrase, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right from the beginning, we have the contrast between the type of people we saw last week. They offer their prayers up to be seen by men and to get approval by men. And this prayer, from the first words, gets our focused rightly on who we are praying to, our Father. This is the contrast from the beginning. So the words our Father declare the audience, the intended recipient of this prayer, is God and only God. And these words, our Father, have to be some of the greatest, most amazing, extraordinary words in the Bible. They should be precious to us because God only has one son, one child. That's Jesus. Only Jesus, his begotten son, has the right to call him father. We do not naturally have that right. But that right is bestowed on us, is given to us through God's grace and through the work of adoption, process of salvation. We see many examples of this throughout the Bible. 
John 1.12 tells us that all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in Jesus' name, God has given them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Then Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul says that we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And that God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. 1 John 3.1 says, How great is the Father's love that He has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. In Romans chapter 8, we see that through faith in Christ, we receive the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. Paul tells us that the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We can go on and on and on. We need, to, we need to move on. We could spend the rest of our time just on adoption, being children of God. But we can see just from these few verses, it is integral to the Gospel, integral to our salvation. Through faith in the death of Christ and His resurrection from the grave, we become children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so we cannot speak, let alone understand, Jesus as our Savior unless we, in the same breath, speak of God as our Father. J.I. Packer really hammers this home sharply, the importance of uh, understanding our spiritual adoption. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Ouch. So, <laughs> that's sharp. So our whole life and worship flows from those opening two words. Our Father. We declare our Father. There's so much in those words. And I said it a minute ago, those words are precious. They are because our ability to say them cost our Father dearly. It cost Him His Son. He gave up everything so that we can call Him Father and be His children. It's only through Christ's death and His shed blood, His resurrection, that allows us to say those words. And so we say them with reverence and with deep appreciation. So after acknowledging God as our Father, we then also acknowledge the place of our Father's residence, our Father in heaven. And so Jesus is clearly stressing the greatness of God and just the the chiasm, the chasm, sorry, of distinction there is between the Creator and His creation. He is in heaven, and we are here on earth. He is eternal, and we are finite. He made us, and we are dependent on Him for our life and every single breath we take. And so that is why we pray that our Heavenly Father's name be hallowed, because He deserves it. It's not that God's name can be made more holy than it already is. It's already holy, because He is God. There's nothing you can add to it. It's not as if saying, God, you're holy, adds holiness to God's name. But it is holy in that it is separate from everything else. And it is exalted above everything else. When we pray that it may be hallowed or treated as holy, 
we desire that that be the case, that everyone and everything treat God as he deserves, as he truly is, as holy. We desire that, as Habakkuk 2.14 says, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that the entire world would know God and his glory. So we are praying here that God would be glorified in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. And we are recognizing, as the short Westminster Catechism says, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sinclair Ferguson says that when we pray these words, we are saying, Lord, may everything I do and say show forth Your glory as my Father in Heaven. And may all my thoughts be focused on what will bring honor to Your name. So we do have to ask ourselves, is this our desire? Do we seek to have everything we say and do and think bring glory to God? Do we have a burning desire that the whole world may bow down before God in adoration and in prayer and praise and thanksgiving and worship and honor? When we come to our Father in prayer, even though it may be in desperate circumstances, with great concern, with heavy burdens, with unbelievable problems facing us, Jesus is saying that we still stop and remind ourselves that our greatest desire should be that this wonderful God who has become our Father should be honored, should be worshipped, and should be magnified amongst the universe. Despite all we're facing, it pales in comparison to the majesticness of our God. So this leads into the second theme we see in the prayer, and that's the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of our Father. So it is out of the love for the Father and concern for His glory that we then can pray, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So why, why do we ask or why do we pray that His kingdom would come? Why is that necessary? Well, we're going to answer that question with a question. <laughs> why do not all people bow down before God? Why are not all people peoples concerned about humbling themselves before their creator and spreading the fame of his name why is that not the case and the answer of course is sin god's kingdom coming is necessary because of sin there is another kingdom that is present in this world the kingdom of satan the kingdom of darkness and it battles against god's kingdom that this kingdom seeks to profane god's holiness to blind us to His goodness, to keep us from understanding and believing how Christ has saved us, and ultimately just to trick us into thinking God is not concerned. God is absent. He doesn't really care. But God is not absent. And He has revealed throughout Scripture that He is working to establish His kingdom here on earth. And even though it may seem that Satan at the present has things in control, that the world is under His Rain, God is working. And in the perfect time, His kingdom will fully come and be established here on earth. And so the kingdom of God really means the rule of God, the reign of God, the law of God being established. The kingdom of God is already a present reality in a way because it's come through Jesus Christ. When He came and took on human flesh, He began the kingdom. He brought the kingdom. 
But the kingdom has not been fully established or revealed in all its magnificent glory yet. And that's shown by the fact there's still sin. That's the number one uh, reason that we know that's not fully established. But through his resurrection, through his death and resurrection, Jesus broke the power of sin. Sin no longer rules the day. And he faded Satan's kingdom to ruin. And so we live between the inauguration of the kingdom when Jesus first came and the consummation of the kingdom when he will return again and fully establish it. And so we therefore pray that the kingdom that has already been established will express its presence more and more throughout the earth until the day comes when Revelation 11.15 describes that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. We ask the Lord to bring that day soon. Because this in-between time is a struggle. We fight, we labor, and strive against sin and its effects in the world. And so we long for the day when all sin and evil and everything opposed to God will finally be conquered and all things made right. We long for the day when God will once again dwell with His people, with His children, just as He did at the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 promises that future reality. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no pain, for the old old order of things has passed away. This is the ultimate reality of the will of God being done on earth just as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is always perfectly being obeyed, displayed, worshipped. And so when we pray this, we are asking essentially that heaven come down to earth. Everything that's up there where you are, bring that down to us, God. We want this to happen not merely because we're tired of sin and it's hard, but so that the whole world the entire creation would see God our Father in all His glory and bow down before His Son Jesus, our Lord and King. And Paul voices this in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, 10 and 11. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow down in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is God's name being hallowed. And made holy. That is is his kingdom come. And that is his will be done. These first two themes we just talked about. The worship and the kingdom of the Father. Focus on God and his kingdom obviously. The next three themes focus on our needs. And so there seems to be an obvious reason for focusing on God and his kingdom first. And then focusing on our needs and desires second. And so since man was made for the glory of God, we can never be what we are intended to be until our lives are properly focused on that glory that God has. Unless, this, unless our vision of life is properly focused, our whole life will be distorted. Jesus makes this point a few verses further on in the text in chapter 6, 22 and 23. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. and He says, since we are made for God's glory, we will always malfunction whenever we fail to live for that purpose and according to our Maker's instructions. I'm going to read that again. Since we are made for God's glory, we will always malfunction whenever we fail to live for that purpose and according to the Maker's instructions. So having expressed our burning concern for God's glory in our prayer, we now express our humble dependence on Him and asking for His provision for our needs. And so we get to the sustenance of the Father. And so Jesus encourages His disciples, encourages us to begin praying for our daily bread. This is so amazing. (laughs) That the God we've just seen, the God of Creator, the sustainer of the universe, the God in heaven, who's working to establish His kingdom. The God whom the nations are like the small dust of the balance. That this God would consider our needs is an amazing, grace-filled thing. And this petition that God would give us our food, our daily needs, you know, doesn't negate the responsibility or the, the purpose we have to work, to earn a living, you know, to, for the farmer to grow crops, plow, reap, raise animals, or it doesn't negate the command that we are to feed the poor as well. And so this is not a prayer of passivity, like, Lord, I'm going to sit here, wait, you, you know, you bring me that food, steak, salad, you know, those sort of things. It's an expression of our dependence that everything we get and do is good because it's from God. And so it expresses that day-to-day hour by hour, minute by minute dependence we are to have on God. In Exodus 16, we see this with Israel just as soon as they left Egypt. In the Exodus, they get to the desert and they immediately begin to grumble because they were hungry. God responds graciously to that grumbling by giving them manna or bread, bread from heaven. Every morning when they woke up, the ground was covered with it and they were supposed to pick it. Harvest it, gather it. But they were only supposed to gather what they could eat that day. If they gathered too much and they wanted to save it for the next day, it would rot. If somehow they couldn't get enough, it was enough. It became enough somehow. And so in this way, Israel, day by day, had to trust God for that next day. For that bread to be there, that food to be there. And live, literally, in dependence of Him for their food. We, in a similar way, were promised that we will always have enough. Matthew 6.25, we'll talk about in a couple weeks. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? These are freeing words. Instead of worrying about our daily bread and needs, we are freed up to focus on more important things, like the things we just prayed about. God's name, His kingdom, His glory, that it be accomplished here on earth, that all people would know it. And so our daily dependence on God for our bread is also consistent with our daily need for God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. So if we have all the food in the world, 
but no Christ, we will ultimately starve. If we have food with Christ, then we will have all that we will ever need. We need physical bread and we need spiritual bread. The Word of God. And we cannot live a single day without the grace of God in our lives. And so because we need both, we pray daily, give us today our daily bread. And after praying for that, for those physical graces, we then move on and pray for the spiritual grace we need. That leads us to the fourth theme, the grace of the Father. Jesus knows that when we come to our Father in prayer, we come with burdens. We come with sin. We come with guilt. He also knows that forgiveness is, is, is as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is for the body. So then He instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts. And a person can only, only pray, forgive us our debts if he first has the right to say, Our Father. And as we've seen, the person who has the right to say, Our Father, is the one who is in Christ. So this all connects. The petition to forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors is tied to verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. These verses have sometimes been problematic for people. You know, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that our reception of forgiveness is determined by our granting of forgiveness? We will only be forgiven if we forgive others. Well, that phrased in that way, I mean, that contradicts the gospel. That contradicts the rest of the New Testament. So the, these verses note that they do not say, forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors, or forgive us on the grounds of the fact we forgive our debtors. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So the key to understanding, I think, this teaching is to recognize we do not receive forgiveness because we forgive others. We only receive forgiveness because we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. But yet, these verses also say we won't receive forgiveness without receiving others. So the person who says the words, forgive us our debts, but will not forgive others their debts, hasn't begun to understand the weight of their own sin. Our willingness to forgive others when they sin against us is in direct correlation to our understanding and awareness of our own sin. If we don't think of our sin as being that bad, then we won't see our need for forgiveness. If we don't see our need for forgiveness, why would we forgive somebody else? We see this illustrated in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. The servant in the parable was forgiven a vast debt by his master, one that he could never repay in a lifetime. After leaving with that forgiveness, he runs into a fellow servant who owes him a very small debt, minuscule in comparison. The servant who had been forgiven won't give any grace to the fellow servant and throws him into jail. When the master hears what the servant did, to the other servant, he throws that first servant into jail because he didn't understand what the master had done for him. When we realize that we have been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ, then we will forgive others 
we won't be able to help it. Because of the experience of forgiveness will result in a change of heart on our part and a willingness to forgive. Because others have ultimately hurt us far less than we have hurt God and what it has cost God. If we really know Christ as our Savior, our hearts will be broken and humble and we will not refuse forgiveness to others. Once our eyes have been opened to the enormity of our sins against God, the injustices and hurts and injuries others have done to us just pale in comparison. They're insignificant. So just as God pardons our debts and we are changed by His love and His grace, we are enabled to pardon and forgive others. So ultimately, the proof that we are forgiven is that we forgive others. We move on to the fifth theme, the protection of the Father. After asking God to forgive our sins for the spiritual grace that we need, we acknowledge our weakness and vulnerability and dependence on our Father by asking Him to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Two things it seems like we need to remember as we hear these words. Number one, God does not tempt us or lead us to be tempted. James 1, 13 and 14 is clear on that. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And also, secondly, the Bible says that trials or temptations can be at times good for us. They aren't always bad. James again says, uh, uh, chapter 1, 2, and 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, temptations of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And we also remember that just a few chapters before here, Matthew 4, Jesus himself was tempted, excruciatingly tempted in the desert by Satan, offered up anything that he wanted, if only he would bow down to Satan. That was very much a reality. Jesus understands temptation. He's been through it as well. And so what does this mean? What is this request that we're asking? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Well, it is a request, obviously, that we would overcome temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit and that God would protect us in that. You know, as we just saw, we, we sin. We need God's forgiveness. We also need His help not to sin, to resist, to honor His name. And it's also a reminder that we need God not only for our physical sustenance and His grace for our forgiveness of sins, we need also protection for our moral behavior, our actions. We are asking to be delivered daily from these trials, that we would honor God, we would hallow His name in this, that we would rely on Him, that He would be seen as God through our overcoming temptation. So we're asking to be delivered daily, but we're also asking for the ultimate deliverance. When Satan is ultimately defeated, all the evils of the world, deliver us from that evil one, now, today, and in the future, that future day. And we ask to be delivered from the evil one because that is the reason our fellowship is broken with God. His work, His 
The sin we do is the reason our fellowship with God is broken. It should be our desire that we have a right relationship with God to know Him and to have uninterrupted fellowship and communion with Him. And sin is the reason we don't. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this petition, this request, this is why we pray this prayer, that nothing may come between us in the brightness and the radiance and the glory of our Father who is in heaven. And so this petition, this last ask for deliverance, kind of moves us full circle back to our Father. This prayer just is intertwined and goes around. These prayers continually remind us of our need for the Father, for His daily provision, for His grace and forgiveness, for His protection and deliverance. And we long and pray for that day when the whole world will acknowledge God as their Father. And when the greatest desire of the universe would be to magnify the Father's name, see His kingdom fully established here on earth, so that His perfect will is lived out to the praise of His glory. That is ultimately what we're praying for. But we do live in that in-between time. And so it's only through the Father's creation and providence that we receive our daily bread. Through the Son's atoning death that we may be forgiven. And through the Spirit's indwelling power that we are rescued from the evil one. To begin our time, I read a few quotes people said about the prayer. I saved a couple here towards the end. I'm going to read. Here's another one from Martin Luther. He says that other prayers should be questioned which do not have or compromise the content and the meaning of this prayer. Henry Beecher said, I used to think the Lord's Prayer was a short prayer, but as I live longer and see more of life, I begin to believe there is no such thing as getting through it. If a man in praying that prayer were to be stopped by every word until he had prayed thoroughly prayed it, it would take him a lifetime. This is a prayer that demands action, demands change. You know, we should never breeze through our prayers. We, it's easy to do. Not thinking about our words or our posture or just the emotions we come with. But especially this one. seems these words, when properly prayed and focused on our Father and His will and His grace, these words, this prayer will cut us deep and we will be changed by it when we get to the end. You know, I posed the question earlier, why is prayer a struggle? I think it has to do with the fact that prayer is about changing our hearts or our will being changed to God's will. And that's what this prayer and prayer about prayer in general is about. It's about conforming our will so that it's God's will. It's that struggle. We're struggling with sin as we seek to do God's will and accept God's will. Or to put it another way, as Pastor Brandon has been using this phrase, it's, it's about looking like the family portrait. It's about looking like a child of God, a person who is in the kingdom of God. It's not so much follow these rules, but be this thing, look like this thing. And no one can rightly pray our Father or your kingdom come or forgive us our debts or deliver us from evil or any of the other phrases of this prayer. And thus we are, our lives are daily being brought into conformity with God's will. And that is essentially what this will or this prayer is about. It's about God's will becoming our will. 
Because when God's will becomes my will, I will not care that others see my acts of righteousness or not. When God's will is my will, I won't be anxious about tomorrow, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to drive. When God's will becomes my will, my world won't crumble when I don't get that job, promotion, or that raise. When God's will becomes my will, my identity is found in what God thinks of me instead of what others think of me. When God's will becomes my will, I can face any trial, temptation, because Jesus Christ has faced and conquered every sin. And when God's will becomes my will, the hurt, pain, and injustice that someone has done to me will pale in comparison to the pain and the hurt and the injustice and betrayal that Jesus endured to pay for my sins. When God's will becomes my will, the reality of the boundless love that God the Father has for me as a child of His, which He demonstrated in the gift of His Son, the reality of that love will make me be willing to sacrifice anything and everything so that His name is praised and His glory is spread throughout the earth. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that God is in control. And we are dependent on Him for everything in our lives. As we transition here to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is another way which we are reminded of our ongoing dependence on God, our Father, for His grace through Jesus Christ. This table reminds us of what Christ did to rescue us from our sin, laying down His body for us, signified by the bread, and pouring out His blood for us, signified by the cup. And it reminds us of our union with Christ and our union with one another. We don't pray my Father, we pray our Father. We pray our Father together in one voice. It reminds us of God's presence with us, not only in these elements, but by His Holy Spirit to strengthen and nourish us through His grace. And it looks forward to God's kingdom being fully established here on earth where King Jesus will rule rightly and according to God's perfect will. So if you have personally placed your faith in Christ, we invite you to join us in this celebration and this future-looking prayer and meal as we desire that God's name be made known and praised and the coming of His kingdom would come. If you are not a Christian or you're not sure what that means, I encourage you just to, to let these things pass by, the elements, and just consider the beauty, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and God's eternal Son. So as the ushers come forward, please join me in prayer. Our Father, thank You for this prayer that You have given us, Lord the words that You instruct us, Lord, and that we can see our entire Christian life, Lord, is contained in these words. Father, we pray that they would be on our lips and on our hearts and that You would conform our will to Your will. And Lord, would this also happen through these elements, through the celebrating of the Lord's Supper, that would remind us and conform us, Lord, of Your graciousness, of Your majesticness, Your holiness, who you are.
We thank you for your son and his sacrifice. We celebrate his death and his resurrection, Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.